Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Ron Martin. And this is going to be a very interesting show today. We were talking about different atheist perspectives and different worldview issues, and we wanted to do a show on some of the supposed evidence against faith in Christ. And I came across 20 Reasons to Abandon Christianity by Chaz Boof. Good old Chaz has 20 reasons to abandon Christianity, and we thought it would be kind of fun and interesting to walk through those and discuss each of them and see where it takes us. That's fascinating, Nate. I read an uh, article out of the UK this weekend that was talking about atheist mythology and how, generally speaking, the average atheist is relatively ignorant about the teachings of Christianity formally. They have uh, certain ideas about religion and where Christianity plays into that, but they really don't know Christianity. So I would look forward to going through these reasons why we should reject Christianity or abandon Christianity and see what they have to say and see what the standard Christian response is. Most Christians that I know have to deal with things like this on a constant basis because there's a barrage of criticism coming from academia, coming from entertainment, coming from friends, coming from whatever media happen to be in our lives. And so most Christians, I think, have been exposed to quite a few reasons to doubt and had to work through those and come up with reasons to maintain their faith. Many atheists, however, going with the mainstream, have never been forced to deal with the problems with their own atheism. Yesterday, I gave a gentleman a ride down the hill. And if you're listening, I'm sorry for how this came across. I didn't mean for it to come across harshly. But I asked this person about their upbringing, and they said they were brought up in an atheistic home. And kind of shocked, I've never really heard that before. I said, atheistic or agnostic? And he said, atheistic. And I said, that's interesting. That's a logical fallacy. I just kind of blurted it out. And then I felt kind of ashamed that I was so <laughs> upfront. Hmm. But anyway, I said, have you ever taken logic? And this man said, no, I've never taken logic. And I said, well, atheism is a logical fallacy. There was an awkward silence hmm. <laughs> for about a minute. And then the ride was over. But the reality, I think, is a lot of times atheists make criticisms against Christians and they feel high and mighty for trashing the Christian's faith, not realizing that most Christians have dealt with these issues. And if yeah. they haven't, they will soon. They certainly will. And in a sense, they have to because Christianity as a worldview finds its strength in answering the problems of life, not just the intellectual problems, but the personal problems of where hope comes from, how to deal with the problem of evil, how to get through life in a world that seems to be increasingly more conflicted and more hostile than uh, we've seen in recent history. The tensions around the world are growing. Today we're going to discuss 20 reasons to reject Christianity. And we're only going to get through 10 this morning. There are a lot to discuss. You'll have to tune in again next week to hear the other 10. So starting out with number one, let's get right at it. The number one reason Chaz tells us to abandon Christianity is that Christianity is based on fear. Interesting point. What do you think, Ron? Well, you know, it's interesting. I look back at all my years in the church, and I don't think I've ever really heard anything to be afraid of. If anything, I find things around us in the world to be afraid of. The crime situation, the economic doubt, personal problems in families and relationships, those things make me fearful, to tell you the truth. What I find interesting with a statement like that is only somebody outside Christianity would make it. 
within the church, the people that we speak to about their faith in Jesus Christ and what he stood for, what he taught. And when we go to the point of placing our trust in him, what I don't see is fear. I see hope and genuine love on a remarkable level. I think it's interesting in 1 John 4:18, the Apostle John says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out or casts out fear. You know, here's the message of Jesus when he was asked what the two greatest commandments are. The first one would be to love God, to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the core of Christianity. There's no fear in that. Someone from this perspective, looking again outside into Christianity, would say, well, you know, what about hell and damnation? And again, there would be a certain amount of trepidation dealing with those subjects, but we don't approach it on fear. We approach it on hope and forgiveness. Absolutely. That we don't have to face an eternity without God or a judgment by a holy God. The fact that forgiveness is realizable and offered freely by God, again, alleviates fear. It actually emboldens and empowers a person to live life and embrace life on every conceivable level. Again, I just don't see any case for fear whatsoever. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Again, First John 4 tells us that we love because he first loved us. Yeah. It's his love and his kindness that draw us into a relationship with him, not fear. Okay, reason number two to abandon Christianity. Christianity preys on the innocent. That, I thought, was absolutely unfair. (laughs) (laughs) All through Scripture, God says that he will judge and punish anyone who takes advantage of the innocent and defenseless and commands his followers to protect them. This is one reason that Christians led the charge in ending slavery in the 1800s, This is why Christians today are leading the charge in ending current and modern-day slavery. Hmm. This is why Christians are fighting such a bold fight against things like abortion, where lives are literally being lost every single day across this planet. This is why Christians across the globe are contributing more money than anyone to ending things like hunger and poverty. These are the core tenets of Christianity, right? Loving our neighbor as ourselves because we love God. And the reality is... Christians do not prey on the innocent. Rather, we do anything we can to support the innocent and defend their rights. That's exactly right. Again, statements like this, I think, are made generalized without checking out the facts. They're made from a position of prejudice. And discrimination. James tells us that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Hmm. Doesn't sound like praying on the innocent to me. Okay, reason number three that Chaz tells us we should abandon Christianity is that Christianity is based on dishonesty. Interestingly, he misses God telling us that he hates dishonesty. There aren't a whole lot of things that God specifically says, I hate. He says, I hate divorce. He says, I hate pride. There are a few things like that. But one of those things that God says he hates is dishonesty. Christianity's central claim is a foundation on truth, not dishonesty. Remember Jesus' claim saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truth is predominant in the Christian worldview and a claim that human beings can seek, learn, and discover what is true is foundational to all we believe. Dishonesty, however, is the antithesis of what Christians pursue. Yeah. You even think about the Ten Commandments. You know, one of those commandments that says you shall not bear false witness to your neighbor. What it's really saying is you shall deal with your neighbor 
on a genuine, truthful level in all social affairs. Engaging in lying, engaging in deception or dishonesty was never an option in God's economy for the way people dealt with each other. Even Jesus said to speak frankly and candidly with each other. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Basically, eliminate the double talk. I kind of have to look around and think if there's anything today that functions on dishonesty, it's the political system of, of promises that aren't able to be fulfilled, the social system that says, you know, you can have things that you don't have to work for, that kind of stuff. There's so much dishonesty and deception built in our world. Why would we abandon Christianity that calls us toward truthfulness, frankness, candidness with each other and holds that up as a standard of social interaction? It has no ground in my mind to say that that would be a criticism of Christianity. I can't help but recognize the hypocrisy and double standard to claim that Christianity is based on dishonesty while coming up with 20 reasons to abandon Christianity that are themselves extremely dishonest. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of an irony going on here. It is. Okay, point number four, Christianity is extremely egocentric. Egocentrism is not the same as religious exclusivism. We've talked about pluralism and religious exclusivism in past weeks, and it is okay to say there is a truth. Math professors do this every day. Mm -hmm. Chemistry professors do this every day. Physics professors across this nation do this every day, and they are not being proud or egocentric. They are just stating facts as they must be stated. Saying truth is true is not the same as saying I am great, which is egocentrism. And again, I find this interesting. I would assume in an argument like that that somebody is saying that Christians are self-serving somehow. And again, I'm taken back to the words of Jesus when he says, the way that you serve me is to die to yourself. It's really a way of stating that the thing that you do in all affairs of life is put yourself last. You put the needs of others above your own needs. You put the welfare of others above your own needs, both materially and spiritually. If anything... Atheism, in its hardest approach, is the one that's self-serving because it's really denying people the privilege of exploring faith for themselves. It's basically making a pronouncement of, I know everything, and you have to believe what I believe in order to be included in my club. And Christians are saying, wow, no, Jesus told us that's the last thing we should do. We should always keep ourselves open to argument and dialogue. We should always keep ourselves open to the needs of others. And... There's nothing egocentric about that. If anything, it's developing a servant's heart. And that's what we see again and again in the New Testament of believers that followed Jesus. They gave everything to serve others based on their faith and their love for Jesus Christ. Point number five, Christianity breeds arrogance and a chosen people mentality. I don't know about the arrogance part, but it does in a real sense talk about this idea of a chosen people mentality, because the bottom line is, in a world that is secular and moving more toward an anti-God movement, the fact that Christianity reaches out to people and says, you are an object of God's love, that God actually chose you to be part of his family, that you can receive the gift of being in that family freely, simply by engaging in the truth of what Christianity claims, exploring those options, and looking at who Jesus is and accepting him into your life in a personal way, not an institutionalized way, but a personal way, that is the most sublime, beautiful approach to being a chosen people mentality. Why would that be a reason to abandon Christianity? I think that's the primary reason to embrace Christianity. Yeah. 
if you was to take that mentality and hold it as something exclusively for you alone to reject other people, then that would be an arrogant, that would be a wrong approach. Clearly, by all scriptural principles, it would be a wrong approach to the Christian faith at all. But we definitely believe that we are the objects of God's love, and I'm happy to call myself a chosen person based on that. Proverbs 8.13 tells us that God hates pride. I referred to that a minute ago. And the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. The foundation of Christianity is not pride, but rather extreme humility. Coming to God, realizing I'm a sinner that needs forgiveness. Coming to God, realizing I have nothing to offer, that I'm desperately evil, that I have messed up beyond any repair, and I need a savior. That is humility, not pride. Okay, point number six, Christianity breeds authoritarianism. Interestingly, the Bible tells us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Quite the opposite from authoritarianism. Again, perhaps he's addressing the issue of institutionalized religion, some kind of authoritarian approach to that. What I would say is, If you don't think that atheism itself is authoritarian, you should pick up Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. He doesn't doesn't basically say you have every right in the world to believe what you want to believe. I may disagree with you, but, you know, let's talk about it. He basically says if you believe this, you're deluded. You're actually mentally ill to go down this path. That's not authoritarianism. Isn't that an ad hominem attack? (laughs) That's, That's just amazing that this goes on. One professor in a philosophy course told me that anybody that believed in Christianity started in his class with a D and would work their way up. Everybody who was rational, meaning non-Christian, started with an A and would work their way down if they didn't do the work. And I was sitting in the class and I thought about this for a moment and I had raised my hand and I had the professor called on me and I said, excuse me, sir, I just want to know how hard I have to work to get an A, being that I am a Christian and started as a D. And he looked at me, he realized right away what he had done and that I had called him on it. He had set himself up as this authoritarian position of persecution and rejection. And I said, all I'm here to do is study philosophy and have a dialogue. And it was really interesting because he had held in the past that Christianity was one of these authoritarian, mind control, cultic kind of system. But he realized right away that that's exactly what he was engaging in by making such a statement. And I think that's what people like uh, Richard Dawkins depends on in his argument is this kind of intimidation and authoritarian approach to the subject rather than exploring the issues and having a dialogue about it. Point number seven is that Christianity is cruel. Jesus tells us the greatest commandments are to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, And he even goes so far as to say that we should love our enemies and pray for them. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 defines love from a Christian perspective, saying love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and love never fails. Not very cruel not in very my cruel. perspective. Sort of undoes the first six objections right off the bat, doesn't it? It sure Just does. One, one passage of scripture. And uh, here's amazing. one, Ron, that you're going to love. Christianity is anti-intellectual and anti-scientific. My degree is in chemistry, and I'm a born-again Christian. Yep. <laughs> it's hard my, to say you know, it's unscientific. Mine's in electronic engineering. I've engaged in technology development for 30 years now, and 
I guess I should just resign because I'm so narrow-minded. We've both taken more philosophy classes than, <laughs> than most people with degrees in those areas, and we love intellectual pursuit and yeah. arguments. We just mentioned the first greatest commandment, to love God, which Jesus tells us includes loving him with all our mind in mm. Mark 12:30. I believe, as a Christian, that it is not just an option, but a duty to love God with all of my mind, pursuing mm. the truth. Yep. And Colossians says that we shouldn't let empty philosophy dominate our mind or control our minds. Again, I find arguments like this rather fascinating because it puts him in the position of coming from a place of arrogance and authoritarianism, an ad hominem argument that seeks to disarm and, and squelch an argument and dialogue rather than actually promote it. You know, we look at what's going on in the scientific community today where even evolutionary scientists and even advanced people in the biological sciences are now embracing Christianity more than ever before. We're actually seeing people in cosmology looking at models of the universe that basically say we find no other alternative than to believe in God. This isn't anti-intellectual. It's actually intellectually stimulating at a, at a radical level that is exciting, compelling. And again, it's not to say that there's no place for argument in those situations. There is. But we're seeing more and more people embrace faith from a academic and intellectual point of view than ever before. I think of Francis Collins, who is head of the National Academy of Sciences, appointed by President Obama, director of the Human Genome Project, who is a remarkable biological scientist doing research on a level that is just incredible to think about. I heard his testimony recently where he basically said, I came to a point as a scientist where I looked at the evidence in front of me and had no other alternative than determine that God was real, alive, and at work in the universe. And this was a person who was not raised in a Christian home, who actually considered himself an atheist for the better part of his education. And then it was his research that drove him to the belief in God. But what you're missing, Ron, <laughs> is that Dawkins has cleared this all up. As soon as you put your trust in Christ, you become anti-intellectual, yeah, regardless of your training, education, and academic pursuits and accomplishments. Uh, anyway. Um, amazing. And it was, and it was Dawkins who, who said in, in The God Delusion that it seems to be virtually impossible to account for human morality apart from religion and apart from the idea of God being real. I find that a rather significant contradiction in his own position. Of course, the favorite story is Galileo, how the church <laughs> crushed Galileo because of his scientific pursuits, not realizing that that is definitely not the case. Dinesh D'Souza does a great job, I think, in Chapter 2 of What's So Great About Christianity, discussing this issue and pointing out that Galileo was not ostracized because of his scientific endeavors, but rather because he wrote a particularly nasty book about the Pope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they he got made, him he, into some hot water with the church. He, he made some <laughs> statements about the established church that got him to hot water. Actually, the church defended his science and defended his right to go down the scientific path and supported him wholeheartedly in doing that. Again, there were other issues. He was never excommunicated. He was censored. He was asked to please don't say those things about the Pope that way. <laughs> but he was never excommunicated. He was never censored. His documents were released to the people slowly because his conclusions contradicted the popular belief 
that our solar system was geocentric and not solar centric. And the church actually asked him to slow down his publication of his research because the people weren't ready to receive it. And they thought that the people would panic. The church was looking out for the best of Galileo, the best of the people's interest. But it wasn't because he contradicted the belief of the church. They embraced it openly. Okay, a few scientists that have led the way for modern science that were believers. Galileo, of course, the father of astronomy and analytical science. Newton, the pioneer of modern physics. Descartes, the originator of modern mathematics. And Pasteur, the founder of microbiology, are just a few of the many Christians who have laid the foundation for modern science. Hmm. Okay, point number nine. Christianity has a morbid and unhealthy preoccupation with sex. And I'm going to combine this with point number ten, which says that Christianity produces sexual misery. It's interesting how focused the atheists are on sex. I think it was <laughs> Dawkins that said atheism is all about the liberation of the penis, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But anyway, I would say this. No, Christianity has a beautiful preoccupation with sex. Howard Hendricks says we should not be afraid to discuss what God was not afraid to create. The reality is that God created something that was very beautiful, very wonderful, and a great gift called sex. And Christians don't have any problem with sex. They have a problem with people destroying this beautiful gift. Yeah. Just on a side note, the book of Proverbs, again, chapter 5, verses 15 through 19, describe a Christian perspective on sex, saying, Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. The perspective from Scripture is not that sex is a bad thing to be avoided, but that it's such a good thing that it should be treated with respect and admiration and kept good the way God designed it to be. I have a little acronym that I share when we speak on this at retreats and so forth. And the acronym is that a biblical perspective on sex is great and that a worldly perspective on sex is awful. A biblical perspective on sex is great because sex within marriage is grounded. Gee, there's a foundation, a commitment, security, stability, and safety. There's no fear of STDs, no fear of rejection. Sex in marriage is grounded and there is a foundation in which it can grow and excel. R it is respectful. There's freedom to be yourself and accept your spouse for who they are. You're safe to experiment and you're able to grow together. E, there is equality in sex in marriage. There are two individuals growing closer and learning together, communicating, sharing expectations and desires. A, sex in marriage is agape love-centered. It's selfless, unconditional love, serving and putting each other first, desiring each other's highest good, and there's no shame or regret. And finally, T in the great acronym, sex in marriage is time-enhanced. A past that is shared, a present to enjoy, and a future to look forward to mean that sex gets better and better the longer you're married. So sex in marriage is great. It's grounded, respectful, equal, agape, unconditional love-centered, and time-enhanced. Outside of marriage, sex is awful. It is, A, ambiguous. There's no foundation, no commitment. There's insecurity, instability, and danger. W, sex is weary outside of marriage. It's performance-based acceptance. It's not safe to experiment, and you're unable to grow in the relationship. F, it's factional. It's two individuals seeking their own ends instead of each other's. 
arguing with and misunderstanding each other. You, it's ungenerous. It's selfish and unconditional. Using each other for your own desires, full of shame and regret. The opposite of the agape love that we see in Christian marriage. And L, instead of it being time-enhanced, it is lost time, a past full of regrets, a present that is selfish and insecure, and a future that's uncertain, meaning that sex gets more painful and less satisfying the longer you're in the cycle outside of this marriage relationship. Now, when we look at these things, I'm reminded of a story. When I was engaged to my wife, I was asked by a coworker how I knew that we were compatible. <laughs> and I said... I'm pretty sure that's not going to be an issue. (laughs) And it wasn't. She told me, my boyfriend and I have been living together for six years, so we know we're compatible. And I said, what if he were to leave you? She said, that would never happen. That would never happen. I said, you have no foundation. You have no commitment. It could easily happen. She said, you don't know how close we are. It could never happen. Hmm. Little did she know that within two weeks of that conversation, he would be running off with somebody else leaving her Hmm. after six Hmm. years of lost time, destroyed, saddened, crushed. That's the reality of sex outside of marriage. It is not that Christianity has an unhealthy preoccupation with sex or a morbid preoccupation with sex or that sexual boundaries are too rigid. Rather, that sex within scriptural guidelines is the most satisfying, exhilarating, and fun sex that you could ever imagine Hmm. because God designed it and he designed it to be great. Working with students that have gone through today's sexual lies and come out harmed on the other end, Mm. I have yet to Mm. meet someone that says, yeah, that was truly satisfying. We see pain and regret in both physical areas, emotional areas, relational areas, and spiritual areas, and oftentimes extrapolated over decades from then forward, you will see relationships that have virtually no sex Mm. and that's actually a trend that's coming out of the sexual revolution and the over sexualized culture that we live in is a predominant number of relationships are becoming what are called sexless relationships Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. where people have burned this gift to the ground because of lies they've believed and they are unable to enjoy it anymore well those are the first 10 reasons that Chaz tells us should be sufficient to leave and reject Christianity. Mm. So far, I'm not buying it. (laughs) (laughs) No, again, it's written and promoted from an idea of not really understanding what Christianity is all about. And I think, Nate, we should end on one good reason to embrace Christianity, and that is the person of Jesus Christ himself. What Jesus did when he was on this earth, the things that he said, the things that he did, the example that he left for us to follow, The commission that he gave to his disciples is one of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves and being loved by God and accepting the forgiveness that he offers us on the cross. I am just amazed at all the debate from the atheistic side that refuses to admit the need that our culture has for forgiveness. And if you're listening this morning, we would encourage you to take a moment, maybe put all the other arguments aside and ask yourself, Is my life really complete and full the way it is? Or are there issues that require forgiveness? And we just invite you to embrace the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, to accept him, to open your Bible and read about him, to get involved in a good church and study what Christianity is really teaching, what Jesus is really asking of us, because what he's really asking is for us to love him and be loved by him forever.
And if you're thinking about visiting a church here in Durango this morning, I would encourage you to visit First Baptist Church. I will be preaching there this Sunday, all three services. If you're listening to this broadcast, you can make the 1045 service. I highly encourage you to get involved in the church, and First Baptist would be the church I would direct you to this morning. I would also like to invite you to connect. Connect is a group of students that are growing in our walks with God here on campus. We'll be meeting at the Student Life Center this Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. in room 119. I really hope to see you there. It's going to be a great time. You can get all of our previous shows at eternityimpact.blogspot.com. Again, that's eternityimpact.blogspot.com. And please let us know what you think about this show and all the other shows that you see there. We really do appreciate your comments and questions. Again, this week we just shared the first 10 points that Chaz gave as far as why we should reject Christianity. We found that those 10 came up short. Next week we're going to be dealing with the next 10 reasons that he says we should reject Christianity. So tune in again next week because I think it will be enlightening and encouraging as you realize that there really aren't good reasons to reject Christianity, which leads to the obvious conclusion that we should each embrace Christ's claims and come to him. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's our hope this morning as we share with you that you'd find him, realizing there are not good reasons to reject him, and there are very good reasons to accept him. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great Sunday.